Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. You've probably heard about Fiverr, a global marketplace of skilled freelancers. But sometimes businesses need to manage multiple complex projects simultaneously. That's why they created Fiverr Pro, where you can gain access to the very best freelancers, streamline your workflow with a user-friendly dashboard, and collaborate on projects with your team. Designed to handle projects of any size, Fiverr Pro is the ultimate freelance solution for your business, with no hidden membership or subscription fees to get started. Visit pro.fiverr.com to sign up and use code VOX for 15% off any service. That's pro.fiverr.com and use code VOX. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You think you know me as a popular baker of desserts on Instagram, but that isn't me. It's all cake news. But in my spare... Oh, Eric, that's a bad one. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter, and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power change and the people you need to know. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, we're joined by two experts in media disinformation, Emily Bell from Columbia University and Phil Howard from Oxford University. Emily is the director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, and Phil is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute. He's also the author of a new book about disinformation in the 2016 election called Lie Machines. So we'll talk about that, but I also want to discuss the state of disinformation online in this election year and obviously the coronavirus pandemic. Emily and Phil, welcome to Recode Decode. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So let's go with each of you. I'm going to start with you, Phil. Talk a little bit about the state of play right now, like right now in the disinformation state with relation relating to coronavirus, because that's where uh, a lot of the social networks have sort of stepped up and tried to push back the flow of bad information, whether it's about uh, cures or vaccines or other things. Well, the state of play right now is sort of a, a, in a terrible state uh, in that the misinformation around the coronavirus is now being generated in huge volumes by the state media agencies in China and Russia. And they uh, are working in a coordinated way to uh, undermine our trust in democracy and and make us wonder where the virus came from and whether our leaders can, can do anything about it. So talk about that. How does that manifest itself? Well, operationally, uh, China's CGTN and a variety of newspapers and Russia's uh, RT and Sputnik, operationally, we find that they can reach a billion social media user accounts each week. We've started a, a weekly tracking memo. And many of these accounts are duds, they're empty, they're fake accounts set up by the, the Russians and the Chinese themselves. But that is many more social media users than even the most professional media outlets like CNN or BBC. Uh, on a weekly basis, the state-run content from China and Russia reaches more English-language social media users than, than even the best of the professional news outlets. How does that work? Explain to, to normal people who are like, I, there's a lot of noise out there, I don't pay attention to anything. How does it actually work, reach? What does that mean to people? What it means is that uh, the state broadcaster will use dozens and dozens of official accounts to push out a news story on a given week. And then those, those official accounts will, there'll be retweets and reshares and uh, cross-platform exchanges that, that a larger army of uh, trolls, sometimes they're military personnel who've been retasked to doing social media, uh, and they'll promote the content, they'll push it into the corners, they'll They'll take it from Twitter and put it on Instagram uh, or TikTok or WhatsApp. It, this, there's quite a quite a complex ecology of all these platforms, and and that's what amplifies a message. And usually the messages are about um, about questions. You know, where did the virus really come from? Can there ever be a cure? And is this lockdown really necessary? Uh, it, it's about introducing doubt into into our minds using our own networks of family and friends. So, Emily, talk a little bit about why uh, these countries want to want to do this, because it's not just being done by Ch the Chinese or the Russians. It's also within this country uh, yeah. domestically. 
Yeah, I think that that's right. Um, and it's great that you have experts like Phil and his researchers tracking this. We do some tracking of this as well. You know, there's a strong component of this as well, which is just, you know, um, I guess we would call them uh, people on Facebook, uh, sometimes idiots on Facebook. Um, <laughs> I call so, them COVID-idiots, but go ahead. COVID-idiots. Um, so why are they, you know, why are China and Russia doing this? Well, you know, there's a long-established history of wanting to destabilize, particularly Western governments and alliances in the West. If you think about, you know, the power that sanctions have over somewhere like um, Europe, you know, those only really work when you have coordinated action between state actors. If you have somebody like Trump in the White House, who uh, is a kind of conspiracy theorist himself, then you are much more able to, um, if you like, sort of, you know, manipulate things so that you don't get consensus uh, among populations, but also you don't really get consensus among leaders either. So, so that's the kind of short version of, of why are they doing it, which is a consolidation of power um, to keep uh, potential adversaries weak. Why do people here uh, spread this? Why do they? I mean, th- this is the other thing to say, which is there's a long, long, long history of propagandists and state actors. I mean, yeah. you know, America's done it plenty in the past. But for any of it to actually work, you have to have fertile ground. So you have to have people who are susceptible to doubt, who don't trust what they're being told, or who just want other answers because the real answer isn't very helpful to their own lives. You know, it's just, it's pretty bad news. So if you really want to believe that it's a good idea to open um, your business, because if you don't open your business, you're going to be in debt, you're going to go bankrupt then you know you you will hang on to some of those fringe theories or or crazy assertions particularly if you've got the president of the united states going yeah you know maybe maybe this is true maybe it isn't true all right phil when you think about the the coronavirus itself it's probably one of the things you studied in this new book is about the 2016 election is right. it the same techniques is it a similar kind of atmosphere and if you could describe sort of the, the ecosystem for people who don't, you know, who aren't as technical as you are, but talk about how the ecosystem works. Is it, is it exactly the same lie machines? And what does it take to make them work perfectly? Well, it's it's a pretty similar machine, I'd say. It's definitely evolved. It evolved in 2018 in the midterm elections, and it's evolving now. But at its very basic level, there's a, a component of production. There's a, teams of people who produce misinformation and design the graphics and sit in offices and think up the spin. There's a dissemination system, and that's that's the social media platforms themselves, right? That's the algorithms that Facebook and Twitter use to to pick particular bits of content to put into your social media feed. And then there's there's an additional layer of, of marketing that often involves taking uh, credit card records, taking uh, other information that you put out when you've tweeted or you've posted things on social media uh, to make sure that you get uh, sort of the, the quick A-B tests, right? The quick testing of, of which ads you're most likely to respond to and which content's most likely to, to light a fire under you. Even today, those big mechanisms exist. So for Russia and China, there would be teams that, uh, in China in particular, they do not want us to think of this as the Wuhan virus, uh, and they want to introduce doubt as to where it might have come from. Uh, And there'd be a production team that produces news articles, produces commentary, but commentary essays that look like news articles because they use the New York Times font or they use the BBC colors. And then all that content flows over Reddit and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and arrives in your inbox uh, along with the ads that would make you doubt uh, doubt that you're getting the real information from the leadership. So the system's pretty similar. I think one of the things that's changed is that uh, in the last couple of years, it's actually become PR agencies in the West that are offering the same kinds of services that uh, the internet research agency used to, you know, used to develop on its own from St. Petersburg. So it's, that's why it's much more common. And there are many more politicians in the West who uh, don't mind paying for these services, contracting out, and uh, they don't want to lose right when they run for office. So uh, 
So many of them see it as a worthwhile investment. So, Emily, let's talk about what is typical, because a lot of this stuff had been done before in previous elections. So, like, you, right. you have it, it's happened. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a fresh new thing that politicians lie or do ads. I'd love to look at uh, like the concept of that people have, are now used to this. They know when they, they see this stuff that some of it's just noise right. and some of it's not. Is that fair to say, or do you, do you um, think that it's still effective? If everyone knows there's Russians out there. Right. So let's take the fact that last weekend you had protesters outside the State House in Melbourne, Australia, which is a long way away. Um, Not very many of them, like maybe kind of a few dozen, but nevertheless, they'd bothered to get out of bed and and, and go and hold up placards saying, arrest Bill Gates, Uh, which is, and that's a bizarre connection of a crazy conspiracy theory that uh, puts Bill Gates in the centre of this, you know, liberal conspiracy to control population through the coronavirus, etc. And somehow it seeped into these fringe um, areas. But but this is kind of not just local, it's a global thing. And if you spend much time, I've just been teaching a class where, where unfortunately, I made my students spend quite a lot of time in closed Facebook groups, you know, just learning how to get in there and how to hang out and uh, what to see. And the kind of things that just um, circulate among people who I would say are not necessarily crazy conspiracy theorists, but who are a bit concerned, don't spend any time at all really um, examining mainstream news, but like to get it from these communities. And the kind of stuff that circulates in there is exactly the kinds of things that um, Phil is talking about. You know, just everything from grifters by this, you know, there's always vitamins for some reason, kind of, you know, good physical health. And these conspiracy theories go hand in hand. So it goes right the way from grifters to things like the 5G conspiracy theory, which is mass are spreading coronavirus. And you get things like... Yeah, David I want to talk Icke. about all yeah. the different conspiracy theories out there, including yeah, Gates so, and... So, so and that's, how, so yeah, that's how it works. But just one thing that Phil said, which I think is really interesting now, is that this is domestic actors now, and this is marketing. We've been investigating these groups of what, what I call pink slime news networks, which are, they look like local news. They produce thousands and thousands and thousands of stories a month. We've collected about 400,000. They're not very good, but they're also not actually fake. You know, they take these, uh, they automate stories from feeds from things like funeral homes. It looks like your local paper. Um, And it's kind of crazy because these are run by PACs and political operatives and they're used as kind of staging material so that if you're just flicking through things on your feed and you see something like voter fraud repeated over and over again in the font of your local news and if you click through and it looks like a an article written by a real person and it has new news media written on it on its facebook page all of that is exactly what phil is describing as well which is you know kind of a marketing effort to sway people's opinions and how they think about things and this is now just something which is absolutely routine for politicians campaigns and single subject um, lobbyists to latch onto, and and it's moving into this vacuum where we used to have actual local news. So this is a new thing that that has come to America, and that I think we will see more and more of in the next uh, couple of years. So Phil, if everybody is doing this, if everybody is now taking the lessons from 2016 election and applying it, whether it's a PR firm, whether it's a mm-hmm. local politician, whether it's I don't know whatever whatever someone wants to convince someone of. Is it as effective if there's everybody's doing it, this idea that everybody is weaponized and therefore it's just part of the, no, the general noise that everybody hears? I think the answer to that is yes and probably yes. It's yes in the sense that um, we know misinformation in 2016 was targeted at swing states. Uh, the, the audience for that stuff was not the average voter or, uh, you know, the average American, it was, it was particularly for voters uh, that were trying to make up their minds uh, uncertain about how to vote. Um, there are, you know, a few, a number of behavioral models that demonstrate a certain amount of exposure, introduces a certain amount of doubt. There are campaigns of misinformation around voting itself that, that look more like voter suppression campaigns, you know, uh, the election's been moved. It's it's now on Friday. It's not on Tuesday or uh, uh, your your favorite candidate died over the weekend. So there's no point in voting. 
those kinds of campaigns are, um, it, it's hard to know how well they work. I do have a great story of a campaign run over Tinder, over the dating app. This was an, an automated set of accounts that would flirt and then talk about Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the labor leader here in the UK. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, it's, it's ridiculous. And the swipe o- left. He swipe did not win. Yeah. <laughs> he did not win. Well, the only reason we know about it is that the campaign managers who, who developed the, the bot, the Tinder bot, tweeted about it and said over Twitter, they thanked their bot and they named the two or three districts where they thought the bot had given them just a few percentage points uh, that, that tipped their candidates over the edge. So campaign managers think it works. Um, it's hard to know, hard to know big picture how well it works. The social media firms are actually the ones who would have that data, and they don't share that data. So it would flirt with someone and then convince them to vote for Jeremy Corbyn. That's, <laughs> mm-hmm. that's the goal. Exactly. Well, that's actually pretty smart. That's kind of it, but deceptive. Deceptive, but smart. Like, it makes sense that you would get someone in in a situation where they're open to talking. Open to new ideas, yes. Open to new ideas and open to talking. All right, when we get back, we're talking with Emily Bell uh, of Columbia University and Phil Howard from Oxford University. We're talking about uh, disinformation, misinformation, and we're going to talk about some of the most virulent ones online when we get back after this break. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. We're here with Emily Bell from Columbia University and Phil Howard from Oxford University. Emily is the director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia, and Phil is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute. We're talking about a variety of disinformation and misinformation. Emily, for people who don't follow this as closely, is there a difference between misinformation and disinformation? Explain that. Uh, Yes. So they often get sort of swapped in and out because um, I think it matters much more to academics in some ways than it does to the general public. Public, but disinformation is 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 purposeful quite often, but not always um, from a political base. So, in other words, something which is um, deliberately seeded to make you behave or think something is true when it isn't um, for an end goal. Misinformation is just basically anything which is misleading. <laughs> so, 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 and there's a lot of that. So, but the idea of intent is much more present in disinformation, whereas in misinformation, it can be present, but often isn't. Is often isn't. And disinformation is sort of an organized effort exactly. to, do, yeah. to do something. All right, let's talk about some of the more virulent disinformation campaigns going on. Phil, I want each of you to sort of take one. Uh, Phil, take uh, anti-vax, because right now mm-hmm. it's, they, and these are people who actually, let me just say, I think they really do believe this. Um, whenever I write about vaccines anytime or say anything, these are real people talking to me. They are not bots. They are yes. actual. So talk a little bit about that. Well, the latest story we've picked up this week is uh, a number of anti-vax accounts that are uh, pushing a story that COVID only kills people who've received the flu vaccine. Oh. Now, this pushes multiple buttons for um, the people who are opposed to uh, inoculations. 
And uh, it sort of, it continues the sense of fear we have, that we don't really know what's in those vials and we don't really understand the science. I think an important part of these campaigns is having an occasional uh, high-profile influencer, right? A, a Hollywood yeah. star or a... A lot of a YouTuber major po- influencers are doing anti A YouTuber influencer yeah. or a major politician, right, uh, who, who says something that, uh, you know, asks the question. It's like teaching the controversy on climate change. There's scientific consensus that climate change is happening, but we don't actually need to teach the controversy. It's it's the same kind of thing with, with the, the anti-vax campaign. They want to find some deeper truth that isn't going to be there, uh, and in this case, the myths about COVID are uh, are deadly, and that's what makes it worrying. So there's one that the, the one that the flu is if, having a flu shot makes you more susceptible. More what susceptible else? to COVID. Uh, well, there are stories. Uh, we did a survey, a seven country survey about uh, where we asked people where they thought COVID had originated, and just almost a quarter of people, including the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, a quarter of people thought the virus had originated in a lab, mm-hmm. and that's that's sort of an old, an old meme, but it's it's part of a bigger conspiracy story that somebody's out to get us, or somebody's producing this, somebody's targeting African Americans with this particular disease, or somebody's targeting Americans uh, to try to undermine the economy. I think people do like to look for conspiracies and uh, hidden truths, and that's what these stories play to. And there's the pandemics, the, mm-hmm. the 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 video that mm-hmm. went out, mm-hmm. which was pushing all these things. Who was someone who was who was once a very well regarded researcher, or allegedly well regarded. Pandemic is is a is I think the one that everybody is talking about, which is this. Uh, do, I, I'm not going to call it a documentary, but it's a documentary style film um, with uh, a doctor, um, a credible doctor. Uh, who is actually not a credible doctor. If you then research her background, um, she effectively has had uh, her research um, pretty kind of comprehensively debunked. And it fits in all of these conspiracies about how this has been seeded, how it's deliberate, um, you know, the the plan aspect of this is important. And this has been viewed, you know, like hundreds of millions of times. It's really like, you might remember um, the Stop Coney campaign, which is maybe kind of like one of the earliest examples of this that was about, I don't know when that was, Phil, was was it Mm -hmm. seven years ago, something like that. Um, And it uses very sort of similar tactics of, 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 again, pushing on kind of like influencer buttons, getting a hashtag that's you know that's very catchy uh getting people to see it um and then of course you know the kind of platforms have acted and said oh we must take this down but by that point it's kind of too late in a way because people are like we want to see the video so so this kind of cat and mouse with taking material off platforms has also become part of the strategy which is if you can get something taken down you can prove your conspiracy so the folks with their arrest bill gates signs in australia have watched the pandemic um, movie. And it was made for like $2,000. This is the other thing. Right. The, 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 the person who made it is a, is a marketer and it cost them $2,000. And now they're going to make another one, which is all about the science underlying pandemic. And this is where you have this really weird kind of spectrum that goes from just pure grifting, just making cash out of people's ignorance up to state disinformation and manipulation and 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 really sort of deciding you know where one turns into the other is incredibly hard these days i think that that's another thing which has changed which is because so many people are now jumping on these things to make money you get this blend of all kinds of different actors all on the same types of campaign, but maybe for completely different reasons. I see. So, Phil, talk a little bit about Obamagate. I want to get back to Gates, but Obamagate, that's another one that started, of course, with, well, it seems like Trump, I guess. Trump started it. Well, there have been so many Obama-related misinformation stories. Yes. You'd have to refresh my memory of which one, which one of the one Gates This new one is are. Obamagate, you know what it is. It's, I don't know what it is. Nobody knows what it is, uh, but it's this idea. But, but we talk about the, the various Obama ones, because they're back again. 
Hillary and Obama are perennials, essentially. They're perennials, um, mostly because they're the most high-profile Democrats at the moment, even even with Biden as a a clear candidate. I think, you know, Obama uh, will always be targeted by the ultra-conservatives and white supremacists, and uh, Hillary Clinton will always be the target for voters who uh, don't want to see a woman in office uh, and uh, aren't particularly impressed with uh, female journalists or or, uh, prominent feminists thinkers. So Obama's been involved in multiple stories, right? Uh, Starting with birthers. And in fact, that was probably one of the largest national level conspiracy theories that uh, Trump picked up and, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, inspired, motivated, pushed. I think the Obamagate you're referring to, Cara, is just this series of mystery tweets from um, your president, because I'm not a citizen yet, um, (laughs) where uh, Trump has tweeted, I think, about something like over 100 tweets. Um, Right, it's about Michael Flynn. Yeah, on on Mother's Day. And it's it's about um, what he describes as the greatest crime ever of trying to derail his presidency. But there's no specific... Uh, allegations. He just keeps saying it was Obamagate, all caps, you can imagine that. Um, The biggest political crime in American history by far, exclamation mark. And these are these kind of, so so this is where, if you think about these conspiracy groups like QAnon, where you have kind of groups of interest online, dozens of groups on Facebook that discuss these conspiracy theories about how Trump is here to save everybody from this liberal conspiracy. Um, Things like Obamagate are just dog whistles into groups like that. And the lack of details enable, um, you know, the crazy elements uh, to fill in with whatever they want. It's like it's 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 murder. Yeah. So it's it's, it's, and it's absolutely deranged that you have a conspiracy theorist in the White House. I mean, that's the truth of it. All right. So, Phil, talk about uh, the Gates one, the Gates one, which is also, it, it seems to, he's become the new Soros, correct? Is that my... I think that's that, that's fair to say. It's because, yeah. and that's because he's been investing it a long time in uh, health, public health, and uh, trying to cure malaria. Um, I don't actually know why that he in particular was chosen as a target. Um, perhaps it's because he has this this backstory that can be filled in. And I think Emily's Emily's right. It's creating the backstory to a conspiracy that doesn't doesn't really exist involves having incomplete details and uh, slightly doctored or doctored photos uh, or absences in the calendar where we don't we don't know where Gates was for a few months in 2005 uh, and all these things make it possible for different kinds of actors to uh, create a big narrative and then there are specific platforms where they go to coordinate on the narrative, right? So that the the release dates for new nuggets of information are somewhat timed. And the really dangerous thing for creating a big story is to have some of the domestic white supremacists, uh, ultra-conservatives release this stuff and then have a state-backed media agency legitimate it by asking the question, right? So if RT publishes a piece, what was Bill Gates's role? in the development of the coronavirus? The answer is none, but if they still write 250 words about it in English, that'll generate a URL, you know, a website address that can then be easily copied and pasted in the multi, multiple social media f- feeds. All right, so Bill Gates, what else? What is, the, what is another big one? And I want to get to the election in the, last, in, the, in the upcoming election. What is another big conspiracy theory? Another one I'd offer on COVID is that the, uh, there's a story that the, the first person involved in the trials of a new vaccine um, that's being developed here in Oxford uh, has died. And it's fairly straightforward. There's a, a picture of the, the woman who got the first test treatment. Uh, the story is that she dies. She hasn't died. She's doing fine. She's still involved in the trials. And all the doctors behind the research have actually decided to step back from media mm-hmm. uh, to try and make sure that the, the the medicines that they're working on are working before mm-hmm. talking to media because of this uh, inane misinformation about the first person who who got the trial shot. But doesn't that create a gulf if you're if you're not giving out good information? It creates a gulf a gulf in information, and uh, this is the thing we have to balance. Uh, I guess both working in media and something that policymakers need to think about. It's there comes a point where releasing too much, it may be safer just to wait and see the results 
uh, of the trials than to generate more information if you know somebody's going to twist it and put the public at risk. At risk. So in that way, Emily, hydroxychloroquine, yeah. mm-hmm. which is a real drug, and, yeah. and there, there are doctors that have used it, and it's not in effect as a malaria drug. Uh, how that started. It, you know, it went from, it was Trump was there. I think Elon Musk talked about it. Um, but it, it went on and on. And I actually was like, I think this thing is hurts your heart. I think what I can tell, there's no, and I got attacked like crazy. And I was like, these people aren't real. because. And of course, now it's turned out. Right. I'm not a doctor, but I was <laughs> correct in my assessment yes. of the studies. But here's the thing, which is, um, yes, that's absolutely right. And people should not take it. And the people who did take it and self-medicated with it died. But it does reside in this gray area of bad science. And some of that, again, is just well-motivated speculation. Oh, maybe this does work. You know, I can't buy... You can't buy heartburn drugs at the moment because famotidine is also something that has been touted as possibly a way of treating coronavirus. But that's because doctors are throwing everything at this. When you have desperately sick people, you won't try try everything. everything. That's a big difference between, you know, go home and drink some bleach, which is incidentally everybody, very bad idea. And so some of these conspiracy theories, and, you know, they have in them a grain of uh, truth or experimentation. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a really smart um, academic called Kate Starbird, who works at the University of Washington, who wrote a great piece on this, where she was talking about you know, it's actually really important that we have what we call sense-making conversations where things are unclear. Those are those are healthy things for society to have. But because of kind of our mania about mis- and disinformation and the worry about what it can do, we've kind of stopped having those sense-making conversations or we're making it harder for them to take place. And and some of that, I think, is really interesting. It's a huge challenge for journalism. It's an even bigger challenge for the platforms, which is what is the right level at which you allow this kind of discourse to exist? Is it right. all of it? Is it So doubt, doubtful, it? like, let's talk about yeah, it. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about, did it actually come from a lab? There was a paper in... Nature uh, a number of years ago, which now has to appear instantly with a flag at the top of it saying, do not misinterpret this paper. And the paper is about the risks of experimenting with viruses from animals, specifically bat viruses, mm-hmm. in labs and saying, you know, there is a there is a cost-benefit analysis to this, which is these viruses are being ramped up in lab situations Um, in order to figure out what to do if they break out. But one day they're going to break out. Mm -hmm. And that's a perfectly rational and good and interesting paper designed for the readership of Nature, which is a very serious science magazine, where people reading it would attach the appropriate doubt and the right kind of critical questions to it, which was catapulted into the centre of it's come out of a lab and look, here's a paper that proves it. Yeah. So, you know, kind of it's not as clear cut as this is all bad stuff and disinformation and we should never talk about it. But there's clearly some of it which is just, you know, now turning into physically threatening um by taking the previous things and saying, here's proof, yeah, and, essentially. Yes, exactly. And conflating them with hyper-partisan politics. So, you know, another, it's not a conspiracy, but if you look at the Boogaloo meme, I mean, that's one which what is What is now, that one? Uh, I don't know all these You memes, don't know the Boogaloo meme. No, so the Boogaloo, no please go right Well, ahead. so the Boogaloo hashtag is, it's a word for um, the se- coming second civil war. Oh. So if you go and have a look on any social platform, I mean any social, go, go, go look at Instagram, look up mm-hmm. the, the hashtag Boogaloo meme, and there will be a whole load of young men and old men, usually men, occasionally women, uh, wearing um, Hawaiian shirts, which is another kind of um, signal of this, uh, carrying arms. Um, they're all NRA members, they're gun buyers. And the Boogaloo meme is, you know, you need to prep because they're going to come and take our guns and then we need to go to war. And this is, you know, this is now again being used by preppers, conspiracy theorists, but it's also being used by people who want to sell arms and sell ammunition. And it's being used by political groups that want to uh, drive division in swing states. 
you know. Oh, wow. I know. Ooh, Sorry about that. I was that, wearing Carol. a Hawaiian <laughs> shirt on CNBC the other day. I'm really screwed. Exactly. This is it. They will, they will and I, I, I didn't have a weapon. You're giving I the did signals. not have a weapon. <laughs> giving the signals. Um, lastly, Phil, and then I want to get to the election in the next section, uh, uh, bleach. Use of bleach. What happened with that? That or Trump said this for right. unknown reasons. What occurred then? It went all over the place, and then people were absolutely. It. Uh, I mean, he was, he was speculating, uh, asking questions, giving instructions. Not and bleach, course, disinfectants. Disinfectants, Let me just right? Be, okay. Yeah, and uh, a variety of ways to take them or treat them. There's also uh, light, right? That was the light. Uh, query, query about uh, how light could be induced within the body, and, and mm-hmm. it it all generates these sort of nonsense applications of uh, possible easy fixes for what is a very difficult problem that's going to take time to resolve, and uh, with a little bit of conversation in some of the dark corners corners of the internet. Uh, it's now fairly easy to pr- produce, as Emily said, a short documentary, uh, to produce a Twitter stream of evidence with links to scientific papers that that don't actually, you know, address the topics at hand. And I think uh, one of the important turning points always comes when there's a major, like I said earlier, when there's a major Hollywood star or another politician or someone else who's not an expert who retweets, uh, forwards, and passes along. Uh, that bolstered with. Uh, some tens of thousands of fake accounts will help create uh, create the buzz you need. You know, as a as a team, we're about a dozen people. For a joke, for a little bit of relief, a couple of months ago, we decided to study the flat Earth movement to see oh, if it okay. would be, you know, just uh, give us a break from working on this stuff. And it it's it's very similar in that it was imp- tough for us to tell the difference between. Uh, the arguments and the evidence that's assembled by flat earthers and the arguments and evidence that's uh, assembled by people who want to uh, use bleach to treat um, uh-huh. the coronavirus. So it's similar techniques. It's the same it's techniques. Similar. It's the same structure. It's the same argumentative structure. It's the same social media platforms. Uh, and it's the same, uh, you know, neat, neat memes and uh, clever inside jokes. Right. It's really interesting that the flat earthers are how you take a break because they're (laughs) 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 Let's talk. Let's do some flat earthers. All right. I want to finish the section. Well, then who are those influencers? Obviously, Trump is one that sets. I know uh, there was uh, many books on this, but they bubble up. At, to him, and then they bubble back down. I mm. mean, once he get, they move through the conservative circles, for example. Who are the influencers? Trump would have to be one of them, correct? Because he's always tossing out all kinds of different weird conspiracy theories, like the Joe yep. Scarborough thing, the this and that. Uh, on, and I don't want to repeat that because that's just appalling to do. Well, um, we we know who these. Wh- who we, are the top one? Trump. Who else? Give me some names, each of you. Certainly, Breitbart is um, in the next major venue. We know who these people they were or are because Trump has invited them to the White House, right, to, mm-hmm. to lounge, and he treats them like uh, professional media. Mm-hmm. So Trump himself. Who else? Who else? Well, for me, Breitbart's the number two to, two to track. Emily, do you have any favorites on this? Um, I'm sort of well. I don't know. I was so disappointed when um, MIA turned out to be a sort of celebrity that was spreading some of the um so so she's a big she she was a big 5G conspiracy theorist and uh I love paper planes it's a great tune mm-hmm. um <laughs> but 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 you know kind of there are people like that Woody Harrelson was was on the hook for that as well though I think he did actually kind of take it down and apologize you have uh I'm trying to think actually kind of there's um Alex Jones and Infowars they still have they, their yes. they yeah, still have their of, audience Alex Jones is sort of the absolute kind of, um, he is the epicenter, or he's the, you know, he's the grandfather of all of this. There is a right-wing politician who she is standing for office uh, who was, who was uh, proliferating the hashtag film your hospital, which was drive past the front door of your hospital and film it because it's quiet and nobody's there and therefore coronavirus is a hoax. And obviously that's because hospitals had shut their main receptions and everybody was going through the ER entrance. But that was actually pretty effective. Um, I will remember her name in a minute. So while Phil thinks of, while Phil thinks of somebody there's, else who we shouldn't yeah. be following. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a Center for Global Research in Montreal. There's an, another outlet called Zero Hedge. I mean, I, I don't... I well, also Zero don't Hedge, really, that's a good one, yeah. yeah. I, I also don't really want to point people to these James, outlets because right. it's the danger of doing this research. Well, I want to warn James them. Woods, I want to warn. James Woods, he's another one. Yeah. He's, a, he's a big, uh, charismatic um, conspiracy theorist. 
And then it's just regular people who see something and pass it on, right? Like someone like Woody Harrelson that you're talking about that may see something and it strikes a fancy in them. And mm-hmm. and they do that without really actually having committed feelings about it necessarily. Right, or, or they, they haven't fully, they haven't read it, fully processed it, and yeah. have millions of followers. Right? Yeah. That, right. That's a threshold yeah. effect right there. Yeah. Oh, Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. Oh, he is that's another, disappointing. I know, it's all our heroes, Phil. He's another mm. um, person who has, <laughs> who has used his, his large platform of middle-aged men to... Um, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly in this section, so Alex Jones, you call him the grandfather of this. He had been deplatformed, but he's not. Not really. I mean, yes, not he has. Not really, no. Yeah. no so what's not really You mean? know, if the, his audience um, feels that Twitter is uh, censoring them uh, unfairly or fa- if they feel that Facebook is uh, being unfair to conservatives, they, they literally go and create their own platforms. Uh, so there was one story I read about how some feel that Zoom is biased against them, and there's going to be a new ultra-conservative encrypted video conferencing platform uh, that respects ultra-conservative values. How could Zoom? How could Zoom... Wait, what could Zoom do? Yeah, um, uh, Maybe there's some story around uh, whether people are listening in or the security isn't right, and so the big deep state can listen in. It's hard to anticipate what the argument is. The point is that if people, if extremists, sensationalists, conspiracy theorists think a major platform like Facebook or Instagram is working against them, they will try and raise the resources to go and create their own parallel world that they they really can dominate. Well, we'll talk about that when we get back and what are the important platforms going forward. We're here with Emily Bell um, and Phil Howard. Uh, Phil is the director of the Oxford Internet Institute, uh, which is a research organization, and Emily is the director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia. When we get back, we're going to talk about the upcoming election and also how the platforms should be behaving going forward. Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are an APY. APY can change at any time. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. We're here with Emily Bell from Columbia University and Phil Howard from Oxford University. We're talking about disinformation, misinformation, and the way uh, platforms are used and misused. Talk a little bit, each of you, about the platforms now. Obviously, they came under great criticism for facilitating this, um, mm-hmm. being a, a platager, I think, uh, a publisher and a, and a platform. Where are they, each of them? Let's start with Facebook. How do you, each of you, why don't you start, Emily, assess what they've been doing? So here's the thing that slightly bothers me, which is, you know, it is four years since the 2016 election. I'm looking for the really big wins in uh, fighting misinformation, which is the thing that the platforms have been telling us that they are doing and we should all be doing as well. So what play, what Facebook has done is it's slightly got its act together internally. It's much better now at taking down what they call kind of big networks of coordinated, inauthentic activity um, they recently sort of um, deleted networks of pages in places like um, Africa and the Middle East. Uh, you know, so, so, so some of that kind of troll activity that Phil was describing in the 2016 election has gone. What they're just not very good at doing is sorting out their policy around this political stuff. So political advertising is pretty much exempted from being fact-checked. Uh, they've told us that you know fact-checking has been front and centre of their certainly their PR strategy around this. But then when you actually look at how much material is fact-checked, it's a tiny, tiny number of things that Facebook push out to its, um, it's like a few hundred a month uh, Mm -hmm. of pieces of of content that get fact-checked. And then you have this very uh, grand um, Facebook oversight board, which was launched last week uh, with a $130 million budget. 
they wrote about I know, uh, which which I think you and I share some feelings on, which, again, just feels to me like, uh, yes, OK, great that they're finally thinking about how they moderate their platforms. But, you know, I think they're getting better at automated detection. They're getting better at taking these things down when they're flagged, etc. What they're not particularly getting much better at is being ahead of the curve or redoing some. So of- they're reactive. So they're reactive. Yeah, and, and that's because actually to be proactive, they would have to change targeting. They would have to change how they sell ads. They would have to change all the things that make them money. And they are not going to do that. So at the moment, there's just this frenzy of sort of sticking plasters over, you know, basically kind of like they should be curing cancer and they're kind of putting, you know, they're, they're, they're putting kind of Band-Aids on things. All right. Plasters are Band-Aids for those who are not British. Um, <laughs> all right. Phil, what do you think how Facebook is behaving? They were sort of at the center of, of, and of, of your book and everything mm-hmm. else. What, yes. what do you think they have done? Well, I, I agree with Emily. Good and bad. Good and bad. So I agree with Emily that they uh, haven't figured out how to handle um, more overtly political misinformation, but that they right. have... They're good on the virus. So. They've done a better job on the virus. And uh, we've compared, um, for about two weeks ago, we did a study of uh, how many f- stories that had been debunked, right? So stories that had been fact-checked remain on Facebook and remain on Twitter. And uh, Facebook's numbers were not bad. I think it was uh, 40, 45% of the stories that we had uh, that had clearly been debunked are still there on Facebook in some way, uh, but Twitter's numbers were much worse. Uh, it was some something like two thirds of the fact-checked stories were still there on Twitter, and um, for other platforms, they were doing even better. So I think I think Facebook's trying hard, and uh, yeah, they're an important outlet. It's important to also remember that uh, most young people aren't using Facebook, right? So we can talk about it, but it's uh, it is Instagram and it is. TikTok, and it's, it's a range of other platforms that I'm not even on. Uh, right. We have no data on those. Uh, on TikTok or mm-hmm. Instagram or where they're, what people are doing, what people have moved there for. Right. If we're talking about things that Facebook hasn't done, so two things it said. One thing it has done is it's purchased a lot of dissent. It's um, given a lot of money to research centers, not mine, I should say, uh, and to Online. Uh, and all fills and to journalism outlets. But what it hasn't done is it hasn't stopped new places where this can form. So actually, one of the strategies of Facebook, um, which also owns Instagram and WhatsApp, has been to push more and more creation of content into what they call stories, which are these ephemeral um, things that you post and they last for a few hours and then they disappear, and into these kind of closed groups. So groups are everything. If you go onto Facebook, you spend any right. time like pretending that you live in Facebook world, you're assailed by you know so many things saying it's great to, to create a group. And it's for researchers and journalists, it's very hard to get into WhatsApp groups, uh, Facebook groups, and interrogate things like Instagram stories. Because, you know, kind of like they just don't allow you to look at the kind of content within there. So we've had to... Yeah, so those are hidden groups as they were on AOL many years ago. Yeah, and 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 a lot our sort of experience as researchers. So we we do. Jo- I mean, you have to manually join like thousands of these things. It's very depressing. But our experience of that is that these things just sort of live and circulate in normal conversation. And unless Facebook is going to wade into those groups and go, uh-uh, you can't talk about this, which is instantly it's not going to do. They're not, They're not going to do. Right. So ironically, all of this, we must fight misinformation. They've literally been building misinformation factories um, mm-hmm. within right. their own apps. And, and that is right. utterly crazy. Saying people can say, I think their argument is people saying they want the privacy of their own home. I think that's Yeah, but their, these are not their own home, Carol. They have right. like 37,000. I don't have 37,000. Exactly. It feels like No, I have, but that's, how the, that's yeah. their argument. It feels, is. Like this a, is our it feels like I have 37,000 people in my home right now, but I don't. Um, but, right. but I can in a Facebook group. Discussing. And that's where all the, the action is happening. All right, what about Twitter? Well, Twitter's much harder to manage. I think they've, uh, in the last six months, they've been pretty good about sharing data now. Uh, when they catch a significant campaign of misinformation, they do take it down and tell us all about it. But they're, Twitter's a little stuck in that one of the most significant sources of COVID misinformation is uh, the president. And his they're account, not taking him down. they're not taking him down. It probably does violate the Twitter's um, community standards. But uh, they also have a policy that public figures who um, who deserve News, newsworthy exactly yeah. newsworthy they they must be kept up. So that is why 
Trump still uses Twitter so effectively. Yeah, I think, yeah, t- t- Twitter is really, it's so many journalists on it that actually kind of, you, you know, th- it's a professionalized part of it now. I think there are fewer people actually getting their misinformation from Twitter, but it's just exposed to a much sort of larger number of politicians and journalists who then go on to write about it or use it on their on their cable news shows. Right. And what about the uh, their, their decision not to accept political advertising? Phil, has that helped or, or was that the right decision for them? Uh, I don't think it. I don't think that's a good thing to do in democracies. I think it's important to take uh, political advertising, but to insist on good uh, financial declarations so that we can tell who's paid for the advertising and not and how check much. whether they're accurate. Um, I do think they should be held responsible if they're advertising something that is patently false and uh, mm-hmm. certainly risking public health. Uh, yes, I would. I would treat them as a, a publisher. In that respect, I, I do think the social media firms are publishers. So in the fact that Facebook said we're just going to not touch them, Google had a little more uh, oversight, it looked like, and Twitter is like, we're just not doing it. Which of those do you like better? I like none of them. Okay, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I don't like them either. I, I like none okay. of them because they kind of speak to sort of throwing your hands up in the air and saying we can't really have sensible regulation about this. And actually, there are plenty of, you know, functioning democracies. Well, kind of Britain used to be one. But it's functioning democracies that have pretty tight advertising rules around when you can and can't advertise. But Phil's right. You know, one of the things that the platforms really should be tackling is provenance. So, you know, when you're reading a local news story and it's paid for by a political pack, you have no idea that that's the case at the moment. It's almost impossible to find that out just from Facebook or any of the social platforms. So I think that before you regulate, you have to measure. Um, I do think actually one thing that Facebook did, which was good, was have an ad transparency archive around political advertising. Um, yes. So at least we can see it now. But the, but but if they're not going to stop anybody who is a so so if you're running, you know, what's a politician? If I'm running for the school board, I'm a politician, right? And I could say the most crazy, incorrect things as part of my political campaign and pay to have them promoted on Facebook, and nobody would fact check them because that's their policy. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, it's nuts. So what should be their policy, Phil? What should, if you were running Facebook, what would be the policy you would then put into place? I would put into a, I would put into place a sort of a, a policy that allowed for the promotion of high quality content. Right? I think it's it's usually easy to agree on what the high quality independent professional journalism broadly looks like, and then it's usually easily to agree what the the worst of the dreck looks like. There's the, uh-huh. the sources in the middle that take a lot of debate. But a straightforward whitelist of the top 20 news sources promoting these kinds of things algorithmically uh, would seem to be, you know, a core part of the solution. I mean, one, th- one thing I would like to see, which would actually stop a lot of this, is first of all, you can't target, might be one thing. Um, right. That's what Google did, yeah. right? Google said we're not going to do yeah, that. which I think that's, that's good. Uh, the other thing is pre-vetting. So, you know, here's a fun statistic that uh, listeners of Rico Decode will, will, will know about which is that, you know, the Trump campaign ran 55 million different ads in the last six months of the 2016 campaign. So one of the things that, you know, kind of is legitimate to say is we can't possibly pre-vet those ads. Well, you know, kind of is it such a great idea that you can, you know, nano-target and manipulate images and messages so kind of infinitely that you're not you know, you're not now kind of broadcasting to a nation or shouting lies from the street corner. You are whispering them into people's ears. So I think that's that's the number one problem with all of this is just like not knowing what these ads are and not knowing who they are reaching and having no way to tell that is is it has to be fixed. All right. And so, Phil, in terms of you're saying high quality, but in ads themselves, how do you do that if they're algorithmically ge- if they, if people can do them autom- uh, they're automated not algorithmic automated I I actually don't want to answer the question because I actually think ads are a bit of a diversion mm-hmm. um, our work on the because content because it's because it's really the organic the content that seems to yeah. have the most reach the most impact and it's so it's those human trolls uh, the right. paid labs in Poland or Brazil or in different parts of the states, that's the content that actually has most of the political impact. And I don't, I, I think, I actually think the firms want us to talk about ads. Um, but I think that since 2016, this is what's changed. Since 2016, those ad buys are not having the impact that the organic 
organic stuff does. Yeah, yeah. So lastly, let's talk about what's going to happen going forward. What are the big things that happened in 2018, and what are the things you think are important going forward to pay attention to? Phil, why don't you start? Well, uh, for me, it's uh, the migration of misinformation onto uh, into visual platforms, into Instagram. Um, that is the big story. I think even even today, we've been talking mostly about Twitter and Facebook, but. Uh, our, our work with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence found that, that most of the Russian misinformation was generated after 2016, not not before, and that most of it had migrated onto Instagram. And there's, there really is no data sharing from Instagram, and none of us have a sense of, of what they do to monitor content. And figuring out what visual misinformation looks like. So these are, we've all seen these, right? These are images where somebody's typed in white text or made little edits to the images to made a, make a funny funny figure, funny image, mm-hmm. that stuff is much harder to understand and, and study as it circulates. So I'm worried about the visual stuff, and I'm worried about oh, the private encrypted chat platforms like WhatsApp, which, uh, you know, WhatsApp insists, therefore, uh, single users to have uh, private encrypted conversations, but sure. they can be turned into groups. They can, but they've limited the size of these groups. Right, but it's at uh, 256, I think, is the yeah. limit. And, uh, yes, it is. We've done we've done work in Mexico and Brazil and India, and these groups, if if somebody wants to manage ten such groups, then they have a then they have a distribution system. They have a large. Yep. Right. Okay, Emily. What about you? Yeah, I would say that the you know number one thing is just kind of groups and our inability to look inside them. I would say the number two thing is. I'm just really worried about how these things now are increasingly playing out in the real world. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to have a pretty unstable and economically very depressed situation for the foreseeable future. And and, and what worries me really is just that we don't have an adequate answer to this kind of riling up of the base and all the way there's no so so coordination among the platforms i think is one of the things that i again we should see lots more of because these things are going to start happening more and more in real life and i i sort of worry that we haven't taken them seriously enough and we're worried about things like amplification, quite rightly, as you say, Carol. We don't want to look at these. Maybe if we don't look at them, they will go away. Um, I'm worried that that's not happening and that we're seeing things like you, you, you haven't heard of Boogaloo. There are plenty of people with, you know, guns on their backs in Michigan who've heard of Boogaloo. Yeah, I saw them. So, so, I saw yeah, them. Yeah, so, so, you know, kind of... I, you couldn't miss can't them. miss them. And, miss and, them. And, and, and that, I think, you know, kind of takes us into an area of thinking about how we reform these things, not just in terms of, you know, what do Facebook's terms of use say, but, you know, how are we going to deal with society? You know, so I think that this is, again, about getting to root causes. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in some ways, I wish we, we, I really hope we're not talking about misinformation in the same way in four years time, because I do think it's a kind of distraction from the much deeper issues Problems of our yeah. society. I think it, as I as I write a lot, is it accelerates and it uh, it, it it amplifies yeah. is the issue. Would already exactly. I mean, when it, when people were talking about uh, the people in uh, Wisconsin, everyone's like, oh my god. I'm like whiskey rebellion. Anybody? Right. Like these are the same people. It's the same. There. Those are dead. Those are dead people. These are the new versions of those things. And I think there's always been that strain running through the U.S. culture of don't tread on me. I mean, come on, don't tread on me. Like it's it's the same. It's taken to an awful extreme and bad shirts, uh, you know, in this case. Um, last question. How do the, uh, both of you, how, do the Trump, how does the Trump campaign stack up against the Biden campaign, Phil? Uh, the, the Trump campaign has uh, years of experience uh, on this, and uh, I haven't had a close look at Biden's organization at the moment, but I, I think Trump has the, the platform and the ability to uh, generate the craziest stuff and uh, you know, I hate to appeal, just appeal to people's rationality, but Biden has going for him a higher degree of rationality and argument, and I'm I'm worried that that's actually a, a handicap. So should he go crazy? No, no, yeah, <laughs> no. I'm just saying. Holding the course, you know, holding the course is the way. Because I, I, I do believe that by not communicating clearly and consistently and sticking to to facts, more people will suffer and. I might hope that they would associate that with the political leaders, that suffering with the political leaders who are making 
poor choices. Emily, let's finish up. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been much of a Biden campaign to assess so far, but I'm afraid I'll go with Phil on this, which is the Democrats have been horrible at this for a long time, possibly because they just won't go uh, as far as they need to. If I, if you talk to Democratic um, consultants, they say, you know, the Trump campaign is still way better at this than we are. And we need to wise up. Um, but I think that also means that if they do wise up, we're in for a really horrible set of divisive campaigns. Mm-hmm. All right. On that happy note, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, we're, this is Phil Howard from the Oxford Institute and Emily Belt from Columbia University. We will have you back after the election to see how it fared it as, as we're going, yes. if, if how it all went. Thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Erica Anderson, is at Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Emily, where can people find you online and Phil? They can find me at Emily Bell on Twitter, but don't if you're a conspiracy theorist. Why not? Go for it. (laughs) She wants to hear your latest and greatest. (laughs) Go ahead, Phil. What about you? I'm at PN as in Norman H-O-W-A-R-D. Uh, on Twitter. All right. And where can we get your research, both of you, for your centers? I'm at liemachines.org for the book. We publish everything through Columbia Journalism Review. So we are uh, cjr.com slash tau, T-O-W. And it is well worth uh, reading all this stuff because it's really information. It's fascinating how this information morphs and changes over time. And it's really important to keep up on the latest uh, tricks that people are using to try to confuse you. And you should try not to be confused. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap a link in the show notes. Thanks also to our editor, Joel Rabe. Special thanks to Srinivas Ram. Murthy and the Squadcast.fm. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Friday. Tune in then. <laughs>